Hello and welcome to Lighthouse in the Abyss. I am your host, Bill Dioclider. Uh, it's been a while since I've done an episode, and that's probably going to be how I introduce every episode, because it's always been a while between episodes. I'd love to get into doing this more regularly, but my life has been, well, fairly interesting to say the least. But uh, let's get stuck into it. So firstly, I'll, I'll do my reading from In Green Pastures. So uh, it's currently Monday, October the 15th, and uh, from this uh, great book, In Green Pastures, which was uh, written by J.R. Miller, um, who was a 19th century uh, American Christian author who wrote some pretty interesting things. I actually did a little bit of a, a Google as to who he was. Um, you know, from uh, the American Presbyterian Church, um, the Presbyterian denomination being uh, evidently, and look, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but um, my understanding is that it's, you know, from the uh, Church of Scotland. Um, so the Church of Scotland is the Presbyterian Church, um, or at least the source of it internationally, and that that was based on the writings, so the sort of, you know, uh, post Reformation writings of John Calvin, but without going into Calvinism itself in terms of, um, you know, the predetermination, deterministic position. But anyway, so October 15th, uh, life as a stewardship. We are not all apostles in the sense that St. Paul was, but to every one of us Christians, Christ has given a solemn and sacred trust in our own salvation. We are to be true to him in a world of sin and temptation. We are to be faithful to duty wherever we stand. We each have a mission which we must strive to fulfill. Are we keeping the faith true to every sacred trust which God has placed in our hands? Are we taking care of the part of the vineyard assigned to us and rendering of the fruits to him who has committed it to our care? Not to fulfill our mission is soon to be left without a mission, dropped out, set aside, while others do our work and receive the honour and reward which would have been ours. So you can hear in this some of the references to uh, the parable of, um, you know, so when when Christ is talking about, you know, the various vine-related parables which occur in several of the Gospels, you know, that he is the true vine, we are the branches, God is the gardener or the vine tender, as it's correctly rendered, Um you know, and there's there's a lot to do with that where, you know, we've, uh, as Christians, we've been grafted into the vine, which was previously the Israelites, the, the Jews, the sort of chosen people. Um, you know, we've been grafted into the vine through Christ. And, uh, you know, that the vines which produce good fruit are pruned back so that they can be, produce even more good fruit where, you know, the Branches that don't produce good fruit are, you know, cut from the plant and thrown into the fire, discarded, essentially. And, you know, this is very much what we're being called upon as Christians to do. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time recently looking at the parts of the Bible which, uh, and discussing them, you know, with a friend uh, in terms of the fruits of repentance, but then also just, it's not just the fruits of repentance. I mean, repentance is such a huge portion of things, but then it's, you know, I really do see the fruits being the fruits of good works. And, 
you know, I get into the faith versus works argument a lot. I think it's a false dichotomy. I don't think it's an either or proposition. I think, you know, um, I forget who it was that wrote, um, you know, about like true faith should produce good works of its own volition, really. And that, you know, works without faith is dead and faith without works is dead. And that's basically where I sit on it. And if you're a solar fide person, you're entitled to your beliefs, but I have many good reasons for thinking that, you know, that uh, isn't sort of necessarily sufficient. Um, but that may well be a topic for another time. So I actually did take some notes for this one just now in the in the couple of minutes before I hit the record button because, I mean, one of the reasons why I've been holding off on recording an episode is because I've been really doing a, a deep dive into the current state of the world. Um, I've been following very closely with the American politics. I've been looking at what's going on in society from a sort of a, you know, a meta perspective. And certainly there's no shortage of things to be concerned about in the world. And I, I do have this sense. I mean, I had this discussion with someone where effectively what my stance was, was that and this was, this was, you know, a discussion where I, I wasn't having a discussion with a Christian. So, you know, I'd, I took a, a secular sort of standpoint in terms of illustrating my point, which was to say that, you know, if the devil is real, then even a cursory glance at what's going on in society would suggest that, you know, he's doing a pretty amazing job corrupting everything that, Christ stood for and by that I mean I just riffed off a, a list of uh, Christian values that I perceive you could make a very strong case for the fact that they are under attack in the Western world and so here here is a short list of Christian values that I could just whip off off the top of my head. So God being chief amongst those those values, belief in God. Uh, children, marriage, family, monogamy, adultery in terms of, you know, no adultery. Uh, Honouring parents, holidays, Christian holidays, non-materialism, non-hedonism, faith, hope in a better future, charity, the church as an institution, forgiveness, redemption, the historicity and legitimacy of Christ, nonviolence, free speech, the truth, personal responsibility, the Bible as a source of wisdom, uh, non-homosexuality, non-sensuality, idolatry, paganism, theft, usury, and covetousness. And I could probably, really, if I was trying to make an exhaustive list to come up with double that. And I want to talk a little bit about how these things really are under attack. And it's not as if 
you know, I take a hardline stance against some of these things. I mean, you know, I don't much relish the thought of having to talk about the highly incendiary topics of gay marriage or abortion because historically with my, you know, secular, agnostic, atheistic, you know, typical kind of lefty background that I held in my teenage years and my early 20s, you know, I was very much on the side of of pro-choice and I was very much, you know, sort of pro-gay marriage and I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily... I mean, look, I like the gays. I've got a lot of gay friends. You know, they're good people by and large. It's just, it's a complicated issue. And I, look, let's let's start somewhere else and I'll get to that when I get to it. So what really concerns me, and particularly in terms of what's playing out in the politics at the moment, and there's nowhere where it's not playing out more intensely than it is in the US right now, is that this millennial culture seems to take a very anti-children stance. You know, people are not having children. People are against the idea of having children. There's this idea that is, you know, really, really prevalent amongst my generation, which is, you know, People, oh, how could you bring a child into the world? You know, the world's so fucked. It's, you know, sorry, I shouldn't shouldn't swear on this podcast. Um, you know, the world's so terrible and it's a catastrophe and there's no hope for the future. Therefore, how can you bring a child into the world? And then wouldn't it be better to adopt because there's so many parentless children, which is absolutely true. Uh, you know, it would be better to adopt, you know, and it's, it's selfish to want to have your own biological children just so that they look like you and you know like there's these ideas are so commonplace like i've heard over the years my friend and they all repeat the same opinions like almost word for word it's so spooky how that's seemingly part of the collective unconsciousness because people use the same phrases the same terminology it's you know they're repeating something that other people have said and you know, even just that phenomenon on its own is quite interesting, but there, there's certainly this this terrible, terrible anti-children stance. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack with even an issue just as simple as, as this anti-children, well, it's not simple, but uh, this issue of people not wanting to have children. And I think what it fundamentally comes down to is in part people are scared for the future like people have lost their faith because they don't have a faith in god and they don't and if you don't have a faith in god you have no reason to believe that with things as chaotic as they are now that we in like in a sense it makes more sense to be a sort of an apocalyptic doomsday thinker if you don't believe in god than if you do even though doomsday and the apocalypse and revelation and so on is actually instantiated in our religion it's in a sense even more a religion of the people that don't have faith which is you know that's a an irony in itself but what it comes down to is in the one sense people are terrified that it's all going to come down and so they don't want to 
invest in a future that they feel is unlikely. You know, they don't want to make sacrifices for the continuation of the species because if they make those sacrifices and the world ends, well, then they're going to be kicking themselves, you know, and thinking, oh, I shouldn't have made all these decisions. If I'd known it was going to end up like this, I would have just spent all my time, you know, being a, a hedonist and traveling and doing whatever I wanted to do because, you know, it wasn't, and look, people are rightly terrified about the world that's going to be left for our children. I mean, the the world is in a crazy place. And I mean, I should preface all of this by saying I'm not going to be saying all this to make a case against faith or a case against hope. I I really believe in those things. I really, really do. Down Like I'm fundamentally to my core an optimist. And that's not always been true, but it's been true since I found God. And, you know, the more unshakable your belief in God, the more faith and hope you just, you have to maintain because you you see the, you see a glimpse of the genius of what he's capable of and you just go, eh, it's all good. He's got it well in hand. But anyway, I'm, I'm going off on tangents. It invariably happens. So... People are genuinely scared to have children. Uh, you know, they they don't want to make sacrifices because they don't want to have wasted their time and effort for a future that cannot possibly be. That's how they feel if they don't have the requisite faith. I think also, you know, people are less um less selfless in our current culture you know by moving away from christian values and i mean this is jumping down the list uh you know to materialism and hedonism and stuff we have we have a media and a culture that has taught people to be more selfishly oriented and to pursue base pleasures and pursue sensuality and pursue their own happiness uh and even though it's because all of all of these things are connected, you know, the children issue is connected to the marriage issue is connected to the family issue is connected to the monogamy issue. Everybody is trying to figure out in this complex landscape how to have the best possible life. And there's so much conflicting information and so much of it is fatalistic and so much of it is trying to turn people away from the truth which is that you know there there is nothing more sacred than the family and i mean i've come from a very broken and complicated family you know and but i see i've seen good families and you know i've even seen and there's, you know, aspects of my own family which are, are very good as well. I don't mean to sound as if my, my family is terrible, but it's not without its problems. It's not without its dysfunctions, and that is modern families. But true happiness long-term comes from family. You know, family is the most permanent, really, you know, in terms of the connections and the roots of your own being, you know, family, family is just so important. 
But okay, so back to children. I think people are scared to have children because they had terrible upbringings themselves. They have unprocessed childhood traumas. I think people are in a lot of pain. And if they're anything like me, they have spent a lot of time doubting whether or not they're even up to the job of being a parent. I mean, it took me a very long time. And really, it took me finding faith, you know, faith in God and faith in Christ to even believe that I was capable of transcending my own pain and suffering and trauma and flaws and selfishness and everything else to want to be a parent and to believe that I, flawed as I am, am capable of being a good father and a good husband. And I do believe that, even though at the moment with the way things are in my life, I'm not sure when that's going to happen for me. I need to find find a wife first, but uh, be that as it may. So people have lost faith in the idea of family because so many families are so messed up and people have lost faith in the future and they don't want to bring children in and potentially, you know, be handing over a world to them which is screwed beyond repair. Um, which I think, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to baby boomers and their parents. Um, I'm fortunate enough in my social circles to have a, a broad range of friends of many different ages and one thing that comes up when talking to old people, which I highly recommend people do. I mean, another thing about our generation is that they just aren't listening to old people at all. And there's a disconnect between the generations, which, again, I see it as, you know, like there's a lot of causes for it, but the archetypal force that's at play here is like, it's like a demonic force. It's a force that tries to increase social separation and create isolation between individuals and groups and families, you know, to cut us all off from each other and to cut us off from our past. And our past is so important because our past informs the present and allows us to look into the future with the right perspective. And so I think it's hugely important that people get the perspective of, of the older generation before they all drop off because it's interesting to hear what they have to say about how they perceive the world and how they perceive the world has changed and what their own thoughts are for the future because, you know, being parents and grandparents both, they are really concerned about the world that we're inheriting and... But then, you know, coming from a, a more faithful generation, they do seem to have a, a lot more hope than I find amongst millennials, that's for sure. So I suppose to summarise the, the children issue, it's very concerning and yet, you know, by the same token, Biology is one of the strongest forces in the world, and I'm a big believer in biology. Um, I'm a big believer in the sciences. Uh, the human proclivity to survive and procreate, I think, ultimately 
will uh, will win out. And I'm seeing it, you know, just because people are having children later and they're having fewer children. Uh, that's still better than not having children at all. You know, um, I'm, yeah, well, anyway, I'm sort of rambling a bit, so let's, let's move on. Marriage. I mean, it's no, no joke. Like, it's, it's so obvious for anybody taking a cursory glance at the West with, you know, divorce rates through the roof and so much of the public conversation being around, you know, marriage is a, a failed institution it's anachronistic you know people uh think that the world is too uh, i don't know that we've progressed beyond you know this idea of what marriage even is and i mean a big part of the problem is that you know we are having to question well what is the the real purpose behind marriage and i mean the purpose behind marriage is for children it is you know every statistic in the world points towards the fact that the best so the best predictors of not just adult success but offspring success in terms of growing up healthy and emotionally integrated and culturally and socially integrated in such a way that gives them the best chance of success for the future and perpetuating through the generations is for children to be born in wedlock in stable pair bonded families you know that they're and not just that but that is also the thing that is the biggest predictor of success for parents it's it's so counterintuitive given you know what we've well, what i feel that i was raised on and what i observed growing up i mean you know people people have railed against the idea of marriage and yet it proves to be the case that getting married is a really, really good idea and that, you know, a married couple is fundamentally stronger and better equipped to handle what life throws at them than someone unmarried and that the kids raised in wedlock are healthier kids. I mean, it's, you know, that's just how it is. The, the numbers don't lie. The statistics don't lie. And yet, everywhere you look, you know, the discussion that's pushed by the media and, you know, the, the kind of ideas bouncing around the collective unconscious seem to be very anti-marriage. You know, and this, this, these attacks on, you know, children and marriage are fundamentally attacks on the family unit itself. And, you know, we're seeing a rise in people wanting to pursue non-monogamy. You know, there's a lot of open marriages now. There's a lot of polyamory, poly, like polygamy. You know, this, this idea that it's okay to have, you know, multiple sexual partners and look, Historically speaking, I will own up to this, that in my 20s, you know, and this was all above board, it was negotiated, you know, with all of the, the requisite people, but there were times that I went through where I had multiple sexual partners at a time, and they all knew about each other, and it was all, you know, negotiated and above board, because, you know, my philosophy, at least politically, has always been 
what goes on between consenting adults is no one else's business. You know, that everything should be open to negotiation between consenting adults. Now, you know, I mean, and this was in all my infinite wisdom as a 20-something with, you know, a whole slew of problems who wasn't doing too well. So obviously, I was wrong. And the more closely I've looked at history and what has taken civilizations down, uh, you know, particularly looking at the the large civilizations of, you know, Rome and Egypt and... It's interesting. It's interesting to see that in terms of what the anthropologists have to say when studying societies and civilizations is that polygamy is a terrible, terrible idea because regardless of whether it's, you know, uh, I mean, what ends up happening? I mean, sure, you can have, you know, women that are with multiple men and I mean I'm sure that that's problematic in its own right but what seems to be more the case at least looking at it uh, anthropologically and historically is that it's you know very successful men will sleep with everybody and they'll have multiple partners and the less desirable men will not uh, get anything and that's where you get your incels which is the the sort of hip modern uh, internet term for involuntary celibates people that can't get laid effectively and what's been shown to be the case is that in societies where polygamy is practiced you end up with a lot of involuntary celibate men who are aggressive and violent and have I suppose because their sexual needs are not being met, they become resentful, they become uh, prone to ideological manipulation, and they tend to gather, form gangs, and uh, destroy social cohesion. And if I was a better podcaster, I would have actually done some research and I would be able to link you to some studies and so on. Um, I mean, use you know, Google Scholar or, or just, you know, Google itself and go have a look at uh, what people have to say about polygamous societies. They are not stable, they produce violence, and they lack social cohesion. And I will state that as a fact with no corroborating evidence because <laughs> I'm a fundamentally lazy person. Uh so the short, the takeaway is that, you know, even if you're looking at things not from, I suppose that's what I'm doing and going through this list. I mean, I'm not making, I'm not making a biblical argument for children or marriage or family or monogamy so far. I'm actually, what I'm doing is making a secular argument, but then with a view towards the fact that these are Christian values that are instantiated in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament. And that's what's so fascinating to me, is that if you are keeping up with the statistics and the anthropological studies and, you know, the things coming out of, uh, well, just, you know, the, the Western academic body, what the analysis seems to be showing 
is that what's instantiated in the Bible in terms of how to build a society that is stable and thrives and, and iterates forwards through generations, that the Bible actually gets it correct, at least in terms of what the statistics say. And that in, in its own right is very interesting. I mean, you know, these are the sorts of arguments that I use against non-Christians to, to basically point out the fact that, like, maybe we should be taking the Bible seriously because, you know, this is a document that's being cobbled together over thousands of years. It's the accumulated body of wisdom that's come to us from antiquity. And the things that are in it actually seem to check out more often than they don't. And believe me, coming from my own, my own history of being, you know, non-Christian and non-religious and, you know, at, at various stages, very anti-religious, nobody is more surprised than me. I mean, this is, I'm talking about things that I never thought I would be saying. And I believe things now that I never thought that I would believe. And it's, it's very surreal. Anyway, moving down the list, adultery. This really goes into the monogamy one. It you know, and marriage, it's all folded in together. Adultery, I mean, Jesus had a lot to say about adultery because there's things, there's things that get pushed by the Roman Catholic Church which are, are not biblical. And there's things in, in Christian tradition going back, you know, not just Catholicism but other denominations as well. There's kind of things in the judeo-christian milieu which strictly speaking are not scriptural uh you know there is no prohibition against premarital sex and there is no prohibition against masturbation in the bible that is a fact people will like to quote various bits of scripture that you can kind of twist and warp as saying well they allude to this they're not saying it explicitly but they're saying it implicitly I've looked at those verses and I don't think it's there. Now, I'm not saying that I think that premarital sex is a good idea. Uh, there are reasons why it isn't. And, you know, that's that in itself is quite interesting. You know, that uh, the Kinsey Research Institute uh, published findings that suggest that the more sexual partners somebody has before finding their eventual partner, the higher dissatisfaction they're likely to report within that marriage, both sexually and otherwise, and that they have a higher likelihood of breaking up. So it's actually in your best interest to have the lowest conceivable number of sexual partners before pair bonding, and the lowest conceivable number would be zero. So you can actually make a case uh, just using the available body of research and statistics to say that the sort of Christian tradition of, of no premarital sex is a good tradition, at least insofar as that. Now, there's probably being quite a complex issue. There would be a counter-argument to be made for that because, you know, uh, I'm not convinced that the hardcore restriction um well it seems to have some pretty adverse effects at least in terms of what happens with men 
in particular, but look, I don't need to go into that. But the short version is, you know, and I'm sure this will come as a shock to many, there is no provision against premarital sex in the Bible. And when it comes to masturbation, well, you know, that's an interesting chestnut as well, because at least in terms of the Bible, it's not in there. There is stuff uh, in the Jewish Talmudic uh, tradition, which we as Christians don't acknowledge, um, which handles like what they think is going on with masturbation and why it's a sin. Again, I'm not going to take a, a pro or anti stance here. Um, I mean, I, I think that the scientific evidence points towards the fact that masturbation is healthy um, because there are certainly uh, health issues associated with non-masturbation, at least where men are concerned. There's a slew of health benefits for both men and women. And... Uh, it's not in the Bible. So ultimately, I think, you know, let your conscience and your relationship with God dictate what you think about it. Um, but at least biblically speaking, you are in the clear. I didn't mean to get onto this topic, but it's happening. So, you know, let's just roll with it, I guess. Um, yeah. Because, you know, if you if you just have, like, this, this pure celibacy thing, I mean, pure celibacy has produced some of the problems that we see in the priesthood, you know, um, and I think it's produced... There's a, a an interesting book uh, called... Is it the Book of Days? Um, oh, I want to say it's by, like, a guy called, like, Christopher Ravel or something like that. I mean, look, I'm, I'm pulling this straight from my memory. It's a... It's a translated diary that's been sort of added to a bit that tells the story of a, uh, a French crusader. And, you know, you read, like, the, the things this guy wrote about, you know, his inner turmoil when it came to sexuality. And this is, you know, obviously medieval times. And you just go, wow, this is so bent. This is so messed up. And one of the things that gets leveled at the church, particularly the church that em emerged out of medieval times, is that, they had a very draconian and warped attitude towards sex. You know, all sex outside of the the marriage bed was considered a sin against God and a sin against Christ and a sin against the Spirit. And I'm I'm just not convinced that that is supported by Scripture, and I am certainly not convinced that it's healthy for our culture. So. It's interesting, and it's worthy of more discussion. Maybe I'll, I'll come back to these and do more of an argument. But uh, adultery, because and this is how I got onto the topic, because Christ talks about adultery multiple times. He's very firmly against it. He saw adultery as, like, the foundational sexual sin. And I agree. It's... And so much of the Old Testament as well, you know, really talks about, like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments, you know, it's, and if you're thinking in terms of social cohesion and family cohesion, then adultery is one of the, the absolute 
bombs. Like, I mean, it, it destroys marriages, it destroys families, it destroys children, it destroys people. It is the worst, and I'm very much against it. I abhor cheating. Uh, don't do it. It's, it's not worth it, because when you get right down to it, nothing hurts people more than deceit. Nothing hits people where they live. It hits them in their spirit. It inflames their animal nature, that proclivity towards jealousy and territorialness and possessiveness. It makes people, I mean, people lose it. People get violent. People get depressed. People get suicidal. People get homicidal. You know, people get abusive. It it cuts them in a way that some people, they never fully recover from. I mean, I know people that got cheated on in their teenage years and it affected permanent personality changes and they were never the same person again. It was such a formative trauma for them that it ended up dictating the rest of their life, which is crazy. We're talking about, you know, teenagers cheating on each other and it had the ability to destroy someone, you know, and I've just, I've seen time and time, it's, yeah, I don't know what to say about it other than adultery, don't do it. And I've run in the circles that practice polygamy and open marriages and blah, 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 this and blah, 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 that. And it's like, in theory, you know, as somebody that is very libertarian, very sort of between consenting adults, all things should be permitted because it's not the business of anybody other than the consenting adults. It works great in theory. As a philosophy, I feel that that philosophy is like bulletproof from a logical standpoint. But then when you see it in practice, it just doesn't work. And I'm sorry, I've never seen an open relationship that actually worked long-term. I've never seen a polyamorous relationship that actually worked long-term. I'm sure there must be some out there. I've seen some documentaries that, you know, show people engaging in what seem to be working relationships, but I think I would just want to see them long-term. I think, you know, you could see something that's working for now and not see how long-term it's not going to work. And again, you can't use exceptions to prove a rule. Just because something works one in a thousand times doesn't mean that it's a good idea. So ultimately, adultery is not a good idea and open relationships are bullshit. Sorry. It just doesn't, it goes against our nature fundamentally. And I don't think we can have a functioning society without without all of us agreeing to make those sacrifices. We have to make sacrifices for the good of the whole. You know, people, people will make short-term sacrifices for their own long-term gain, but Christianity calls upon us to make short and long-term sacrifices for the good of everybody. And I, I feel that that's what we so sorely lack in some respects. Uh, you know, we've, we've lost that part of our faith in our own culture and our faith in what life is in order to 
bring about a better future for everybody. I just don't see... I look at my grandparents' generation and everybody was like... They all volunteered for Lions and Rotary and everybody was very charitable and it was all about, you know, what kind of member of society they were, what kind of pillar of society. I don't see that with my generation. I don't see people engaging in acts of charity. I don't see people volunteering. I don't see people sacrificing their own ambitions for the good of everybody. And that to me is an alarming we've lost something we've we've lost a connection to our past we've lost a connection to our rich culture and our rich tradition we've we've lost our honor you know we need to get that thing back that that teaches people that not only is it right it's I, and i mean it's right there in in green pastures you know that idea of stewardship that we have a duty as Christians to to do right and to act out the Christian ideals as an example for everyone else and to bear good fruit for God through Christ really um, anyway honoring parents okay there's reports that I hear that in the United States there are some schools that are genuinely not using the terms mum and dad because they don't want to offend or hurt children who don't have a mum or a dad or both this to me i mean if look if you can't see on the face of it why that's completely absurd i genuinely have to question whether or not you're paying attention or whether you're thinking because yeah it's just it's crazy what could be more fundamental for the majority of people than their relationship with their parents and the notion that we're going to not discuss or teach or address something that is a fundamental part of the majority of people's being because of a very very small minority who unfortunately for their circumstances do not have a mother or a father or both is it's just absurd and i just see this this is weaponized uh what do you call it like this brand of leftism that is obsessed with people living you know in the margins or outside the margins uh it's important we know it's it's instantiated in christianity that we have a duty to the widows and the orphans you know that we we're supposed to care for them and help them and as a community we have to take care of these people and we do, but then the idea that we're not, we're going to ban certain words and we're not going to be able to talk about, there's going to be verboten topics. I mean, I'll jump down the list to free speech. What could be more important than free speech? Christianity was, Christianity was the, the religious philosophy that gave us free speech, you know, and there's a mix of, of sure, the philosophy of the ancient Greeks in there as well. And you know, like the Jewish tradition that predates Christianity, like it's all a mixture that informs Western Western culture. I mean, the great pillars that support Western culture would be Christianity, uh, you know, Jewish thought and Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, um, you know, talking about like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, the great Greek philosophers. 
So, yeah, actually, no, free speech is a topic on its own. It, uh, I, it would take me hours to unpack why free speech is important. Um, so let's just keep moving down the list. Non-materialism, I mean, and non-hedonism and non-sensuality and idolatry. I mean, I'm looking down my list here and the way that our culture is now, it's, it's got everybody obsessed with the material world. It's got us obsessed with, you know, you've got to have a big house and you've got to have a nice car and you've got to have all these products, you know, we're dr driven by market forces and the economy and, you know, you've got to make this much money and buy this many things and, you know, then you'll be happy, then you'll be happy, then you'll be happy. And, I mean, I feel like this is all profoundly obvious and, I mean, these are topics that, you know, people, not just Christians, but people of other spiritual uh, faiths have been warning against forever. You know, it's not a recent thing, but it's in recent times that it's been getting completely out of control. And we've lost seemingly uh, that part of our cultural wisdom that teaches us not to exalt the material over the spiritual. In fact, in the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition, they extend the concept of idolatry to the focus, the mental focus on any manifested thing. Like, so, I'll try to explain that concept. So, we know that, you know, idolatry, we think of it historically as the worship of, you know, like statues of gods or graven images or... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, really, historically, those those things, um, but it goes so much deeper than that, you know, that anything effectively that you worship that isn't God is considered a form of idolatry. I mean, I was reading um, one of Timothy Keller's books, and he's talking about, you know, the overvaluing of uh of sex and he says that the overvaluing of sex in itself is a form of idolatry and what i'm saying is that like the jewish mystics took it so far that they say that when you know you're meditating that to put your focus into anything which is manifested because to them God is the ultimate unmanifested thing, that all things that are manifested in the creation are from the unmanifested creator. That's kind of the, and look, that's a very reductionist argument, but Kabbalah is very complicated. I'm not going to go into it here. Uh, that would be a subject for several long podcasts on their own, but they think that anything manifested anything in creation that you hold up as something uh, worthy of worship is a form of idolatry. And I mean, look, they would probably take it so far as to say 
that you know the, the and this is the accusation from Islam as well that the worship of Christ being that he was manifest is a form of idolatry you know that's in in the Talmudic tradition that's their big grievance with Christ um, because you know they believe that there's no such thing as a well but then they also have their Messiah thing so it's it's strange um, yeah, anyway, I, I won't go go too far into that. But uh, suffice it to say, you know, in reading the Quran, you know, Muhammad's great beef with Christianity was that, you know, and look, I'm not convinced he had a particularly good understanding of Christianity because you read um, the Quran and there's a lot of uh, mistakes in it about what the Christ Christian theology actually is. And the theory about that is that he was actually only being in the part of the world that he was. He was only exposed to one particular sect of Christianity, which was not a popular sect of Christianity. So, you know, his kind of conceptions of what Christianity really was weren't actually on point. Um, so, you know, he mistakenly uh, believed that, you know, we were engaging in idolatry by worshipping uh, Christ when, you know, I mean, Christ says himself in the Bible, you know, not to direct worship at him, but at the Father from whom all good works are done. I can't remember where that is in the Bible, but it's 100% in there. And, yeah, so... You know, it's so strange because it's just like this one one big misunderstanding as to what is even happening. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, worship God, follow Christ. That's, you know, that's the deal, at least in my interpretation. But then, you know, what do I know? So, um, the West is guilty of idolatry. You know, we worship money and... It's funny because, you know, there's that whole time is money thing. And then, you know, people like to connect, you know, uh, time to the sort of historic god of time, which was Kronos, which is associated with Saturn, which is Satan. It's a very complicated idea. I mean, I could lay it all out. But um, in a sense, I think it's true because I do think that, you know, the worship of money is Satanism. Like it's it's Luciferian. It's it's devil worship. I don't mean that in a, you know, like in a literal sense, as some people do, you know, those kind of like, there's a lot of, you know, crappy GeoCities style websites of people that are just, you know, very kind of fundamental in their thinking and very sort of medieval hellfire. I mean, I've spent some time recently on... Uh, there's a, a Christian forum on 8chan, um, and yeah, wow, are there some interesting thoughts floating around in there, and maybe it's a good idea that I don't go into all that, because it's just, it's it's very concerning. Um, but then there's some very good discussion there too, so, you know, it's it's certainly not all, all bad news. I've learned some things, certainly, uh, by walking into that particular den of snakes. Uh, the idea 
is basically this, that we can't put place the material concerns above the spiritual concerns. It's the fundamental idea of Christianity and it's the fundamental idea of Judaism as well, that the spiritual should always take primacy over the material, you know, that we're to subordinate our animal nature, our base desires, all of the things that come from the material and the natural and the manifest, the sensual world being the sensual that we perceive through the senses, is all to be subordinated under our divine spiritual nature. And that is not just in Christianity, it's in, you know, Hinduism and it's in Buddhism and so on and so forth. Like, it's it's the essential, essential, central spiritual idea. Um, yep, so, and this world, I mean, it's just, I think it's a permanent state of being that, you know, we're always at risk of slipping back into our animal nature or slipping back into our materialism or slipping back into our naturalism and that, you know, we must be steadfast and, and try not to go with the flow because the natural flow is for entropy for us to slip, slip backwards. And we just, we need to be watchful. So faith and hope are under attack. For sure, you know, there's just, there's no real question of this in my view. Um, people are scared, people are cynical, people are, if you don't have faith in God, it's very hard to be optimistic about the future. I'm not saying that there aren't optimistic atheists, but they're few and far between, and they're certainly the exception, not the rule. And... So much of it becomes a part of where do you focus? You know, what are you looking at? And me, I have a, I have a hard time because, you know, there's, there's the idea of, uh, and this is not a Christian idea, but, you know, uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Um, you know, that by continuously keeping yourself pure, by not looking at, you know, not seeking out the darkness and not looking for it, that you can keep yourself pure and that you'll have a better life. It's kind of, which to me, I see that as, and I, I do understand the argument for it. And for some people, it's like, all right, all well and good. Like some people are just part of that positive vibes only crowd. They're not, they don't want to deal with, they don't want to contend with the unfaithful. They don't want to uh, perceive the evil inherent in the world because it drags them down. They just want to keep it. You know, if they can surround themselves with only good things, then that will be the the bulwark against the the evil that might encroach against them, or something like that. I mean, I kind of get it, but like by the same token, that feels like willful blindness. You know, you turn a blind eye to the things that are truly happening, and that's not good. And I mean, I think you know that while that philosophy might be all well and good for the the Eastern religions, uh, it hasn't produced good results. You know, these Eastern religions, like, that are, are way more kind of, you know, hippie, peace and love, 
uh, they're all about passivity. They're all about receptivity. They're all about, you know, non-action and not imposing anything and minimal necessary force in terms of your dealings on the world. And while I see the wisdom inherent in those ideas, they have fundamental flaws because, you know, and you can tell by the kind of... Uh, cultures that they produce and i'm not talking about their religious cultures in terms of critiquing those because i actually i'm very positive on hinduism and buddhism and taoism and shintoism and zoroastrianism like which actually i'll put zoroastrian under western not eastern religion but uh this non-action idea and this you know keeping yourself kind of pure like those religions tend to be a bit more ascetic a bit more kind of you know cutting yourself off from society and really focusing on your own enlightenment um the issue with that is that that's all well and good for those people that are adherents but then it does nothing to dissuade the people that don't follow that religion who are then creating the power structures that govern those cultures i mean you know they've still got a caste system in india you know there's i mean you look at china and india and all these other eastern countries with eastern philosophical concepts and they're pretty corrupt and you know pretty kind of tyrannical and it's there's there's some stuff going on that's not good um Whereas I feel that Christianity has, you know, its big thing is uh, it's anti-tyrannical. Now, I'm coming up on an hour here, so I'm going to stop here and start a new file before I lose my progress. So, uh, one moment. All right, here we go. Christian Values Part 2, Lighthouse in the Abyss. Uh, so, I was just making the claim uh, that... Christianity is an, an anti-tyranny religion, more so than the Eastern religions. Um, because I see, and this is a, a reduction reductionist argument, but I don't think it's a fallacious argument, that uh, the Eastern religions can be surmised as being passive and all about, I mean... They're, they're about non-action and they're about going with the flow and they're about kind of, you know, not... They're not a call to action uh, as much as I would say that Christianity is a call to action. It is fundamentally anti-tyrannical. It is fundamentally... I mean, what, people, people talk about, you know, okay, who was Jesus Christ? And it's like, well, he was a teacher. And it's like, yes, he was. And then it's like, he was a man, yes. And it's like, he was a son of God, yes. You know, he was a prophet, yes. He was an example, yes. He's, he's a lot of things. He's a lot of things to a lot of different people. He's all those things at once. But one thing that I almost never hear him referred to as is a whistleblower. And he was a whistleblower, for sure. This guy was not... I, I really detest when people paint Jesus out as this kind of, you know, like he was like a hippie before his time, man. He was just preaching, you know, like love and nonviolence and we've all got to hug each other and get along. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Like, for sure, there is an aspect of Christ's being which is like that. 
But it wasn't that hippie Christ that went into the temple and overthrew the tables of the moneylenders and the idolaters who were, you know, selling indulgences in the form of these, uh, like, little uh, coins or whatever it was. I had, this was in um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that talks about these things that, um, you know, they used to sell that were effectively like, they were selling indulgences in, and, and you know, sort of like spiritual knickknacks that were purportedly for salvation in a similar way to what the Roman Catholic Church was doing, selling indulgences when Martin Luther uh, kicked up a fit. And, you know, so Christ goes into the temple where uh, the money lenders are, you know, usurists, and there is a, absolutely, it is in the Torah, do not charge usury, you know. So the idea of lending out money on interest is anti-biblical and not just anti-New Testament, it's anti-Old Testament, it's in the Torah. So anyway, Christ goes in and he gets a whip and whips these moneylenders, you know, he's he's going crazy. And then there's all these other times where he's button heads with like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, what, what is rendered in um, our Protestant Bibles as lawyers, but it's not lawyers like we think of modern lawyers, you know. We're not talking about, you know, personal injury lawyers and contract lawyers and, you know, people that go into court and stuff. We're talking about law makers. And these were the people, you know, because we don't understand now what it meant to live in a theocracy because we don't live in a theocracy. That's a, you know, a religious rule where the priest class also dictates the... um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, well, just, you know, the, the the standards of living in terms of the law, like the civilian law, you know? Um, we have that separation of church and state. And so, you know, Christ comes in and he is, he goes to Jerusalem and he's immediately at war with all of these priests like he's just calling them out going like you know you guys are the synagogue of satan you've kept people from salvation you've you know taken the keys to heaven away from people you're burdening them with ridiculous laws and restrictions that aren't even the will of the father like you know because if you if you really take a close look at what's going on with the Jewish tradition and there's more than one Jewish tradition playing out i mean you know you've got like the super orthodox like hasidic types that you know they've got like the outfits and the tefillin which is like the box the black box that they wear on their head and they've got the other one that starts i think it starts with t which is uh so they've got the black box that they wear on their wrist and the, it's got like a leather wrap that they put around and you know all these things and like please let me let me just quickly say i'm not shitting on the jews like i'm not having a go i'm very positive on many aspects i mean they brought for for thousands of years they were the custodians of the tradition that as christians we have inherited we owe them a massive debt of gratitude for the thousands of years of persecution that they endured as God's chosen people. So I'm not now, nor have I ever been anti-Semitic. Uh, and I've, you know, I, 
I've studied the Jewish mystical tradition. I have so many books on, on their thing. You know, I'm trying to understand it. I want to know more about it. But I need to say that because I don't want people to get the wrong idea because I do have my criticisms. And I see when I look at some of the stuff that the really hardcore Orthodox Jewish people do and the, you know, the Talmudic restrictions on like the Sabbath. So I'll tell you one for free, okay? And I think I may have mentioned this in a previous episode. Uh, I went and saw a comedian, Jewish comedian, Ari Shafir, who grew up ultra-Orthodox Jew, later decided that he was an atheist. And he tells uh, the story about how uh, the Jews came to... So one of the um, Sabbath traditions, so they're very Orthodox about the Sabbath. So their Sabbath, it begins at uh, eventide on... A Friday night and continues until basically even tied on a Saturday night but uh, more formally they say when three stars are visible in the sky that's when the Sabbath ends so three stars in the sky are visible to the naked eye that's the end of the Sabbath on a Saturday night and during that time they're to do no work and blah 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 as it's instantiated in the Ten Commandments uh, or in in the Torah uh, but there's all these rabbinical commentaries, these Talmudic uh, commentaries on Torah, which have informed the tradition because, you know, they don't just, like, they've got the Torah and the Old Testament, like the Tanakh, which is the old, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, but then they've got the Talmud, and the Talmud was formerly the rabbinical oral tradition, but then it was written down, um, and there was, uh, I believe there were, you know, sort of two main traditions, one that came out of Jerusalem, the other that came out of Babylon, um, Babylon, I think, during the captivity, and that it's actually the Babylonian one which has been considered uh, to have primacy. So anyway, effectively, there's now a book which was the oral tradition, which is the interpretation of the law, the interpretation of Torah, the interpretation of the Tanakh. And it's in that where all the kind of weird traditions are weird to us, let's say. Um, and one of the things about the Sabbath was that uh, evidently there was this restriction against fire. Now, for a long time, modern Jews were allowed to use electricity, as in allowed to use light bulbs in their home and stuff, until one rabbi went and asked a, an engineer or a scientist... Uh, how does a light bulb work? And then the guy said, oh, well, you know, there's a filament and the filament ignites and that's what gives the light. Ah, so it's fire. And after that, Jews were no longer allowed to use uh, electricity. So they've all got to, if they're Orthodox Jews, when it comes to the Sabbath, they've all got to sit in the dark because they're not allowed to use fire. It's like, it's crazy, you know? And I'm, <laughs> look, I'm not convinced that's what God wants. Just, you know, and when I look at Christ in the Bible, you know, when he's he's dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and he's, he's calling them out, he calls them out. He goes, you know, you guys have perverted the laws of God with the laws of man. You've created unreasonable restrictions. You're oppressing the people. You're making them do all these things that are completely unnecessary. It's an affront to the will of the Father. 
you know, he calls him out. And, you know, one of the things about Christ is that, you know, he really, uh, you know, protected, protected us from inheriting that tradition. I mean, the irony is that we ended up with a different tradition because, you know, it's a controversial thing, but I am just, I, I look at what Christ was dealing with and he was, you know, he went up against the Sanhedrin, you know, which were the high priests, the 70 that sat the, the high priest council in the temple in Jerusalem. And he called them out big time and he upset them. He, he rustled some jimmy, jimmies and ruffled some feathers. Um, and I just think, you know, worry to come back now and see what was going on, you know, with the Catholic church, it would be the same thing all over again. I just, I don't, I don't see how a hierarchy in an institution like that, that is pushing things as tradition that aren't in the Bible is in any way less guilty than what, you know, the temple Jews of Christ's time were doing. And I know that's controversial and I'm sorry if I've offended any Catholics. You know, I have, I have my reasons for feeling this way. Um, and you know, I'm sure you have your reasons for feeling the way you do. You know, you guys do you. I mean, it's just, I just don't think that there's a biblical case you can make for it. That's all. Anyway, you know, and that sort of, um, gosh, how did I get onto this topic? I was talking about, uh, anti-tyranny. You know, there's a trans, there's a, a, an idea. So in, in Revelation, um, when Christ is making his appeal to the seven churches and he's kind of saying to, he, he writes a letter to each of the seven churches or more correctly, he writes a letter to the angel of each of the seven churches. Don't know what to make of that. Um, but he basically commends and rebukes the different churches and some of them get a real talking to for not getting it right and falling short and others he commends and it's all very interesting but one of them he writes to them and he goes but you guys hate the Nicolaitans as I do and he, he commends them for hating the Nicolaitans and he says he affirms that he hates the Nicolaitans and so there's all this uh, kind of talking about well, what are Nicolaitans and one of the theories about what Nicolaitans is, is that if you actually transliterate the word from uh, its roots uh, in Greek, that it could mean those who covet power. And so a Nicolaitan could be considered to be those who are authoritarian, power hungry, those who want to oppress people, etc. I like that a lot. Because to me, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing that Christ would say. You know, because you put that against the rest of the body of the red letters, his words, and you can see that he tells us not to covet power and that he, you know, that we're to be humble and that we're not to chase after material riches. And, you know, if we receive, it's not, I'm not 
you know, anti-rich people. I think some people are given riches because they can handle it and because they will be able to use those gifts for the betterment of everybody. Same with power. There are some people in power who are not uh, susceptible to the corruption of power, who are able to use their power in positive ways. You know, so it's like kind of all good. But then we know that, you know, the old adage, which I believe is a Nietzschean observation, uh, as in Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Which, I, you know, if I've misattributed that, then, you know, I just continue to prove that I don't really know what I'm talking about. But nonetheless, uh, Christ really teaches us to be humble and, you know, to be happy with our lot and that there's no shame in being poor and humble and charitable and that, you know, material wealth is to be shared for the betterment of everybody. Um, and, you know, he really eschews the power structure and he really eschews the hierarchies and he points to those who chase power and money and influence as going against the will of God and going against God's wisdom and going against the true law, you know, the true word of God. So, yeah, that's a, I thought I would throw that out there, the thing about the Nicolaitans, because I'm into it. So, um, okay. So, yeah, and that kind of leads neatly. I'm just working down my list. I mean, people, so charity. I mean, we, and so many charities are so corrupt. It's so crazy, you know, and I think that one of the reasons why the media pushes that is that, so I, I mean, I suppose it's worth saying at this point, I don't necessarily believe that there's some, you know, big conspiratorial cabal of people that secretly rule the world, although there could be. I mean, I think in some aspects they are, but then I think in some aspects that there's just kind of more of an archetypal force that pulls things in this direction. You know, the force of entropy, the force of chaos, the force of darkness. You know, so... And, you know, that that, that is you know, the Lucifer that sits atop the throne of the world. You know, we know that the prince of this world is the devil. Um, you know, if we believe our scripture, which we should, um, you know, and it says that from the outset. I mean, Christianity really says that, like, the prince of darkness rules this earth. And so we have this situation where previously, you know, I look at, the, sh the short-term history of Christianity, uh, I, and I mean, I'm talking about like my grandparents and my grandparents' generation, everybody was involved with charity, everybody volunteered their time, everybody gave what they could, and there was, you know, not only that, but our society honoured and gave dignity and respect and recognition to those who did that. And in some respects, we still do. But in so many respects, I think we've moved away from that you know, we no longer elevate the people who are charitable. We elevate the people who are personally successful. You know, I mean, just look at the worship of like the Kardashians. I mean, rather than me talk at length, I'll just go, we now worship people that are like the Kardashians and we don't, we don't worship those who are 
truly charitable and benevolent. And that's really all I need to say. Okay, the church, I kind of already covered that. Although I will say something. I'll say something about the pedophilia in the church. I think it's very interesting that, you know, and I mean, this kind of goes against what I just said about, about there being a cabal of people that rule the world. There is so much evidence that there is a ruling elite class of people that are into pedophilia. Uh, go look for yourself, really. I don't want to talk about it too much because, frankly, it's disgusting and terrifying and I also don't want to paint a target on my back. Um, but it's there. It's there if you care to look and it's not good. Um, I think it's very interesting that it only gets exposed in the church that it's swept under the rug when it's in the media, it's swept under the rug when it's in uh, the government, it's swept under the rug when it's in corporations, but when it's in a Christian institution, that's the only place where it's continuously publicized, and I think that's because it erodes Christianity. And, you know, to me, that's, that's definitely Satan at work, you know, needs to be said. So that's as much as I'll say on that one. Which brings us to forgiveness. I look at, in particular, this outrage culture of the left that's obsessed with witch hunts, that's obsessed with burning people at the stake in terms of, you know, having them, their characters uh, assassinated and crucified in the court of public opinion. And uh, I don't see a lot of forgiveness. I don't see a lot of, you know, opportunities for people to redeem themselves for people to, you know, apologize and have their sins be forgiven and have them seen to be still having worth. What I see is, you know, we see the sinners and we condemn them and then that's it. They're condemned and they're subhuman and that's that. And I think we know, I think we know that that is not the way. Christ taught us that that, that is not the way. And I think the universe, well, not the universe, but it does, it, yes, the universe, but I should just say society. Society is worse for lacking forgiveness. That if we don't encourage forgiveness and redemption as being possible, that those who have made a turn towards evil in one or several or many of their decisions will never be sufficiently motivated to turn back to the path of righteousness because they will be afforded no possibility of forgiveness or redemption, which is why divine spiritual redemption from on high is so important, because I think Christ knew, and I think God definitely knows, that people tend to be unforgiving, and people tend to, as people not really believe in redemption, they wish to judge and condemn and crucify, which is why you know, Christ's example is so important because it becomes a beacon of hope for those who don't see forgiveness from their their culture, their village, their family, their friends, the people that know of them, you know, that it's being offered that olive branch and being offered a road back to salvation that stops things from getting worse. Because if you're someone, if you've done something that, is perceived as being unforgivable, then 
and there's no good way back for you ever, then you may as well just commit to evil for the rest of your life because nobody's going to forgive you. And no, like, and that's not, that can't be the way. It just, it can't be the way. Um, so that's forgiveness and redemption covered. God, it's going to take me a long time to get to the bottom of this list. I'm only about just over halfway. All right, the historicity and legitimacy of Christ. Okay, so there's a false dichotomy. There's a false war between science and religion. Um, I think I've talked about that before. Uh, so many people believe that, like, you know, Christ is a myth or Christ is, uh, like, as in Jesus, you know, that, like, there isn't um, true historical or archaeological evidence for his existence. And it's just like, no. You have not, you've heard that, but you haven't actually researched it for yourself. You have not done the appropriate legwork to make that claim. I'm not going to go into it here, but like the more you dig, the more sure you become that Christ lived. The fact that there are like eight serious historians from the same time period, some of whom were not Christian, who confirm like that Jesus was real. We've got various archaeological things that point to biblical events just you know look into it like don't be lazy don't don't just repeat this crap that you know people say i mean yeah it's it's crap so all right non-violence that really speaks for itself and people are getting violent very concerned about antifa you know i'm very concerned by these by all means necessary socialist and communist types i'm worried that uh you know what we're gonna see before long is a uh well some some form of uh uprising really when you get right down to it sorry i'm trying to sort out my pen here i've just leaked fountain pen ink all over myself and now my hands are covered in ink fantastic um yeah, I mean, these, these leftist types who are preaching violence, and they are preaching violence, they're not Christian. Um, and, you know, there are religions, one religion in particular that preaches a lot of violence, pretty concerning. Um, as Christians, you know, yeah, well... I don't need to go into it. I mean, I, I'll, I'll talk about violence in a later podcast um, and about when when is and isn't appropriate, at least from a biblical perspective. Um, free speech was kind of covered before. I mean, we're seeing, and again, it's coming largely out of the left with this move of identity politics, and we're seeing censorship rear its ugly head I am concerned by the fact that, you know, and I mean, I don't want to get all kind of Alex Jones up in here, but, you know, he was censored. And in the last week, uh, some, you know, estimates vary between 500 and 800 um, conservative and Christian uh, websites and groups and platforms, uh, you know, Censorship is happening. Censorship is very real. There are certain things that you're not allowed to say. There are certain people you're not allowed to criticize, certain groups you're allowed to criticize, not allowed to criticize, certain religions, certain political stances, certain issues. You know, this is crazy. Free speech 
the war on free speech should be the single biggest concern that we have in the West, and uh, too many people are taking it lying down. And given that, you know, Jesus Christ was the Logos, he's God's word, you know, and he his whole thing was to say, tell the truth, you know, that Christianity, I'll, I'll say it, Christianity is the religion of truth, is the religion that venerates truth above all things. And Christ's example to us as the divine whistleblower was to show up and point to the things that he knew spiritually. He knew because of his connection with God. He knew that they weren't right. And he knew that you had to stand up and say the things that were considered blasphemy and were considered wrong think wrong speech, hate speech, whatever you want to call it. I mean, he got up and he told the truth and he paid the price. And I think that as Christians, if we're going to truly emulate his example, we've got to be prepared to tell the truth no matter what the costs. And I mean, that is scary. There are things that I believe to be the truth that if if I were to say them, you know, I, w I would fear. I would fear for my safety and that is just so crazy and i'm gonna say i'm you know i'm gonna i'm gonna you know over the course of episodes i'm gonna do my best to have the courage to truly follow christ you know but far out it's 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 definitely anxiety and fear inducing because in 2018 we live in strange times where the truth is really really under attack and you know the truth is under attack when free speech is under attack. <sighs> okay. Personal responsibility. Yeah, look, everybody's, you know, we live in a culture that blames everybody but ourselves. And, you know, we forget that society is made up of individuals. And, you know, we're, in some respects, we're only as strong as our weakest people, you know. We've got a responsibility to maintain our culture and improve our culture, repair our culture. We've, you know, our society. We've, we've, we've got a duty, you know, and not just that, but you know, your life is dictated by the values you hold. You know, it's check out some Jordan Peterson stuff because he really illustrates the, uh, and when I say that, I mean like look at his Maps of Meaning lecture series and his Personality and its Transformation lecture series because he really illustrates the fact that you perceive the world through your value system and your perception of life and your perception of the world is determined by the lens in which you look through it. And I used to be, a very resentful person who, you know, I was angry about the things that I thought were unjust about what had happened to me in childhood. And I blamed the world and I blamed God and all of these things. And then I came to understand much later in life that in a very real sense, I was the architect of my own suffering. And that by changing myself and the way that I see things, my life would change. And really, Believe this, the world that you see is very much a mirror of what's going on with you internally. And you're responsible for so much of your life, more than more than you think. You know, we all like to 
put our blame elsewhere and think that it's external forces that are that are dictating the course of our life. We like to absolve ourselves of blame for the state of our lives. And I mean, those of us who are like I was, um, no, it's, you know, Christianity is, is, is a call to taking responsibility and understanding that the way the world is, is not God's fault, you know, uh, because God is without fault really. And that the state we're in is because of what we as people have done with the gift of free will. You know, we were given this freedom to act in accordance with God's wisdom or to do what we saw was best in our own eyes. And the more we've ignored God's wisdom, the worse things have gotten. You know, but... God's got his mechanics for uh, for correcting the imbalance and getting us back on the right path. And the prophets were part of that mechanic. And Christ was the, the culmination, you know, the ultimate in terms of getting us back on the right path. But still, I mean, it's like in, on the one hand, Christ saved the world. But on the other hand, like, I mean, you look around the world and it's still screwed up in so many ways and so you know like what we've been given is the example through which we can begin to fix things that's you know that's how it is that's what that sacrifice meant i mean christ dying for our sins christ gave us the perfect example to emulate you know like it's not it's not just about believing in him it's believing in him in a way that makes you more christ-like you know, you have to try and see see the essence of who he was through... Because people get bogged down by the miracles. I mean, you can't emulate Christ in terms of doing miracles. You're not going to feed a crowd of 5,000 with fish and a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. Neither am I. You know, that's not the part of the story that requires the focus. I mean, you know, those things were because that's what those people at that time in that culture needed. They wouldn't have believed otherwise. So that's, you know, how it was. At least that's my take on it. I don't really pay a lot of attention to the miracles because I don't think that's what's important. I think what he said was important. What he told us to do was important. And what he personally did himself is what was important. You know, his words and his actions set a pattern of behavior that if all of us as Christians were to emulate more closely, may well fix the world and bring about God's kingdom. You know, that's that's what Christianity is to me. And it's not a very popular opinion. I don't know why, because it seems completely self-evident to me. But, and it's it's that's not the Christianity that we were taught. You know, that's not what my opinion of Christianity was back in the day. It's not what my observations of, of Christianity and a lot of Christians were back in the day. It's what turned me away from Christianity in the first place was that it wasn't like that. And it's like some great big lie that we've been sold. And I think part of that is the fact that, you know, some priests, not all, but, you know, some powerful people in the church over many years, you know, did exactly what the Sanhedrin did, did exactly what the lawyers and the Sadducees did. They hid the keys. They hid the keys to salvation 
because they enjoyed their power and they enjoyed being self-styled intercessors between us and the divine. And that was fundamentally what led to, you know, like Martin Luther and the Reformation and Protestantism. You know, it was trying to get the word of God back in the hands of the people and the true teaching back in the hands of the people. And, yeah, we we need to follow Christ. Um, and, I mean, that brings me neatly to um, the next uh, thing on the list, which was the Bible is a source of wisdom. So, now, Chuck Missler taught me this, and I'm going to get it wrong. I believe it was in 1963, might have been 1965, 1960-something, that Bibles were removed from American public schools. And since then, there's been like a 500% increase in divorce, 500% increase in children born out of wedlock, 500% or something like that, increase in suicides. You know, all these epidemics that are plaguing the Western world, uh, at least in terms of, you know, the modern West, they've increased exponentially since uh, the Bible was removed from schools. And... It can be hardly surprising that the book, which is the foundational book of our culture, being removed from our education system would cause problems, you know. And these days we want to look to science to solve all our issues. But, you know, and this, um, oh, God, was this David Hume? I don't know. I'm so bad at this game. I'm so sorry. I, I'm, you know, I'm intellectually lazy in my own way, which is that I don't... Um, do I I just I research the things that I research and I read things and then I just kind of like spontaneously try and recall things rather than having a a focused plan. I talk about this every episode. I've got to stop doing it. Um, there's this idea, and Peterson puts this idea around a lot, which is that you can't derive an ought from an is. You know, just like the facts don't self-evidently tell you what to do with them, and so you need a value system. You need a guide. You need like, science is not wisdom. Science just tells you what is. Doesn't tell you what to do about it. And science cannot give us a morality. It can help us... It can help inform our morality in some ways, but it doesn't really give us a, a, a guide to being and a guide to correct action. The things that give us a guide to correct action are our great religious traditions. And I say traditions plural because I'm going to include the Buddhist traditions and the Hindu traditions and so on. There is wisdom over in those systems that is useful for us as Christians, and we should know about them. I'm not saying that we should worship the Buddha, but I'm saying we should definitely check out some of the stuff that he said because it's pretty useful. Like one that I really like is uh, holding on to anger is like walking around with a hot coal all day with the intention of throwing it in someone's face. What a great piece of wisdom. You know, it's illustrative because really holding on to anger, walking around with a hot coal. Well, what happens if you walk around with a hot coal all day? You burn your own hand. It's you that gets burnt. You know, you're the one that suffers more by walking around with a hot coal in your hand than the person who you intend to throw it at. So don't hold on to anger. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You know, it's not abhorrent to me the notion that as Christians we could learn from a saying like that. And 
Buddha's chock full of them, you know, as is like you read something like the Bhagavad Gita, which is a brilliant book. I really recommend that people check it out. I'm not suggesting that people check it out because I think they should do, you know, uh, become like, like Hindus. I'm just saying that there's stuff they have, you know, thousands of year old traditions that embody wisdom and in some respects, wisdom is wisdom. I think, you know, that there's a lot of places where you can find God's wisdom, and I don't think that we're the sole gatekeepers of, of God's wisdom. Um, but then, you know, like, by the same token, I do believe in the primacy of Christ as the redemptive force that justifies all of creation. So, you know, I mean, that's where I sit. Okay, um, next on the list. Uh, well, no, because I want to talk about the Bible some more. I mean, it's just, it's got a history of a people that shows us where we came from. It show, I mean, the stuff in the Old Testament is like barbaric. The further back you go in time, you're just like, oh my God, this is what people were like. And we were only like this, like not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. That's important to know. And it tells you something. It tells you something that humanity is evolving. We are spiritually evolving, not just materially, not just biologically. You know, we are spiritually evolving. We're becoming more complicated. We're becoming more nuanced. We're becoming more cultured. We're, we're working our way up, you know, and that's God's great plan for us is to, I mean, humanity is his greatest creation. You know, the universe for all its wonders falls a long way short of the complexity of an individual human being. Genuinely, a human being, a single human being is the most complex thing in the entire universe. And that's true. And by a long margin as well, which is so fascinating. People don't talk about that enough. I mean, it's, yeah, and we are made in the image of our creator, and that is, oh, gosh, dogs, shush. Uh, that is not just in Christianity. I mean, every, so many traditions, you know, any tradition that has a god, you know, acknowledges that humanity is uh, made in the image of our creator. And people like to go, oh, well, it's all just, you know, human narcissism. We like to elevate ourselves to the top. And it's like, yeah, no, you can make an objective case looking at reality, looking at things very plainly that, you know, we, we are the, the summit of creation in the known universe. Sorry, just are. Um, and, I mean, you can make a secular argument for the Bible as well. You know, which is one of the things that Jordan Peterson, in some respect, is doing with his uh, biblical lecture series, because you can go, okay, like let's let's play hypothetical. Let's say that you know God isn't real, and that the Bible is just a series of uh, stories that are the collected human body of knowledge over many generations that these were the stories that survived because they were beneficial to some survival and beneficial towards the continuation of the cultures that in which these ideas were instantiated you know that they they helped 
us survive and thrive. Okay. Well, this book, I mean, you know, the latest stories in it are 2,000 years old. The earliest stories in it, you know, are considered to be, I mean, they think the Torah, they think Genesis was written maybe 1600 BC. Personally, and, and, but then if you, you know, take the aspects of Genesis that were um, instantiated in earlier traditions, you know, you can take it back as, as far as like ancient Mesopotamia, Samaria, all of this sort of thing. They're thousands of years old, thousands and thousands. I mean, some of the stuff that's in Genesis is found in, it's found in the earliest writings we have just before things get lost into the sands of time. I mean, these stories could be tens of thousands of years old for all we know. So these stories and this book has survived. It's outlasted kingdoms. It's out. I mean, it's just it. And not only not only has it lasted the test of time, and not only have people fought and died for it. I mean, people have been persecuted for these stories. People have been persecuted just to keep these writings alive. It's incredible and. The smartest people of all these generations held this book up high. You know, that there was a consensus that this was this was the single greatest collection of writing in the whole world. A lot of people, you know, a lot of famous historical figures who we still venerate today say that the Bible is worth more than all the other books ever written combined. And you can make a very, very good case for that. I mean, it's, yeah, yep. Especially the more that we find out about the fringes of science that actually line up with what's being said in the Bible, that's weird. And then the more we find out about anthropology, you know, the more we find out about human behavior and how, you know, what makes a successful society, what makes a successful culture. And then that's also in the Bible. I mean, the more we find out, honestly, if you do a deep dive into this stuff, don't be superficial about it. Really dive into biblical research. The more you find out, the more confident you become that the Bible is the single most important document ever. It's so weird. And I can't believe those words just came out of my mouth. I mean, if you had known me only a few years ago, if you'd known me at any point in the first 28 years of my life, you would know that it's just so incredibly unlikely that me of all people would be that I should speak those words. And yet, you know, it's true. I'm telling you, it's so strange. I, no one's more surprised than me. All right. There's still a few left. I should just try and knock them out. Okay. The non-homosexuality thing. It's a controversial topic. You know, I love the gays. I've had a lot of gay and lesbian friends. I, I appreciate the things that they've done for their for our culture. Big fan of musical theatre. You know, what's so strange is that if you look at history, it's, it's when... I don't want to say it. I really don't. Just don't... Don't take this as I'm... I don't know. I'm not saying this is how I think it is. I'm just saying that you could make a case for it based on history. That when the homosexuality being 
in a society, uh, like at, when it, as it becomes tolerated and so on, there's always this this calling cry from alarmists about it, saying it's a slippery slope and it's going to lead to this and this and this and that. And they use quite absurd examples, like oh, people are going to start, you know, marrying their tables and you know, like uh, being like committing bestiality and stuff. Well, what's weird is that if you actually look at the history, that does seem to be the case. And then if you look at what's happening in the West right now, I mean, a lot of people are saying that we are in danger of coming apart as a culture and that there are things we're hitting, we're hitting peak decadence in terms of our, you know, like the West is becoming, I mean, we're, we're leaving Sodom and Gomorrah you know, in, in our dust, in our race to being, I don't know what. So it's tricky. It's definitely tricky because, you know, I'm not against the gays at all, but then I see what's happening with this, you know, intersectional leftism that's happening and, you know, the way that people are trying to push, like people are trying to normalise polygamy and open relationships and adultery and pedophilia and you know people are getting married to themselves and people are you know i mean stories are coming out about you know bestiality and there's there's all this crazy shit that's happening and i just don't know what's going on and so i'm it's confusing i mean What's worth knowing is that Jesus Christ did not say anything about homosexuality. He didn't, you know, it's not in there. There are no red letters where it says anything about that being a perversion. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about it. There's a lot of stuff in the Torah about it. There's a lot of stuff in the writings of Paul about it. There's a lot of writing by, you know, uh, the Greek philosophers about it. But Jesus Christ, there's no red letter stuff that's uh, anti-homosexuality. Not, you know, I'm just putting, I'm just listing facts, okay? You know, like, don't, don't go crazy. Because I think it's a complicated issue. And as a pragmatist, and as somebody who likes to think logically and reasonably, you know, I go, okay, well, there's a lot of childless parent, a, a lot of parentless children out there that need adopting. And there's a lot of gay couples that can't, you know, like procreate, you know, I think I see a solution here, you know, and, you know, people go, oh, it's an abomination, you know, you need to have mother and father, you need to have masculine and feminine, and I, I just kind of want to say, well, look, my experience of, of gay and lesbian couples is that there's always one who's the husband, and there's always one who's the wife, you know, like, which, which one's the girlier one? Okay, that's the wife. Like that's and that's true in every gay and lesbian couple I've ever seen, and I've seen so many of them. Like so many. It's I don't know. It's it's complicated. The homosexuality thing bothers me a lot because, you know, I want to be a good Christian. But then, you know, I know that they are genuine and valid human beings who are capable of love and are capable of spirituality and they're capable of you know loving monogamous relationships and you know i think it's a little unfair to have 
denied them marriage for so long and marginalized them in such a way as it encourages them to live transient hedonistic lives because they're socially excluded and then accuse them of being transient and hedonistic. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's it's confusing. It's a complicated issue. Abortion is a complicated issue, you know. And that's actually, I didn't put that on my list. I didn't put abortion on the Christian values under attack. Um, I mean, it's screwed because, you know, on, on the one hand, I don't think a woman should be forced to have a rapist baby. But then if we made it, oh, okay, well, if, if it's from rape, then they don't have to, then unfortunately that's going to incentivize people making false rape claims in order to get abortions for inconvenient babies. You know, that's 100% a thing that would happen. And so, you know, that's a problem. And then, you know, in, in some respects, it's like, well, you know, should should a kid who's, you know, going to be born into, like, to crack addicted parents and they're going to have no hope and it's going to be a tragedy, you know, should that be a thing or would it be better that that kid never be born? And then, uh, you know, I look at my own life and I I was a classic candidate for abortion, 100%. Like, you know, anybody looking at my mum's situation when she had me, if, you know, abortion was on the table, you know, she'd had a, a guy knocked her up who basically, you know, not only denied that he was the father, but you know, uh, like destroyed her reputation publicly, you know, called her out for being a slut, you know, all of these things. She, so he wasn't going to be any kind of support for her, you know, uh, so here's a, a young unmarried, you know, pregnant woman. She would have been a classic case for an abortion. Any person that sits on the pro-choice, you know, side of the debate would be like, yeah, abort that kid because it's going to go badly for you. But she didn't. And she managed to find a guy that, you know, began, so started dating her uh, when she was pregnant with me and began adoption proceedings for me before I was uh, born and married her when I was two, uh, had my sister when I was three, you know, like, um, you know, she was, she was fortunate in that, you know, she found a father for me um, and a husband for her. And so, you know, in some respects, like I live in both worlds of, you know, having been both having a father and not having a father. I understand both because it was extremely complicated for me growing up. And, you know, for a long time when things were terrible for me and I was fatherless in the sense that I didn't believe in God, you know, and, but more correctly, I think I just kind of hated God. I resented God for the state of my life and my personal trials and tribulations. And I mean, look, it's not as if that was the only thing, but, you know, I used to think that it would have been better if my mum had had that abortion because I wasn't grateful for my life and I resented my pain and I resented my suffering. But now that I've seen the light, it's like, I'm glad I wasn't aborted. I'm grateful for my life. And I want to make the most of it. And I want to try and help people. And, you know, I see the value in my life and that it's possible for God to take something so flawed and broken and, you know, just a complete mess like me and find a way to justify creation. You know, he, he can justify anybody. He really can. And 
through Christ and God's grace, all of us can be justified. And so, you know, for that reason, I'm, I'm pro-life, you know. Some people transcend. They just do. So, I don't know. It's tough. Um, complicated issues. I really don't like talking about, yeah, the LGBT thing or the or the abortion thing. It's complicated. But, yeah. All right. Anyway. Idolatry. I kind of covered that before. But, you know. Paganism, yeah, there's real, you know, man, the new age thing, the new age thing is just paganism and idolatry personified. I was into it for a while, you know, I was, I navigated those waters and there's some good thought in there. There's really, oh boy, is there some good wisdom in the new age stuff, but you got to be very selective. And the thing is, because it's a moneymaker, because it's an industry, there's so much crap, so much crap. And, you know, you just got to... I really believe that you've just got to, you know, have like the primacy of Jesus Christ as as your, you know, the the that's the rock upon which you can use to kind of forage into these other areas as long as you know where your home base is, you know. Um then you can't be led astray. And then yeah, theft, usury. I mean, a whole world runs on usury. You know, the banks are charging interest and it's, and it's a front to God, you know. We have this whole world propped up on the idea of, you know, interest-based debt. Terrible. Um, you know, the banks, yeah, it's not good. Definitely not good. You know, but... Uh... And then covetousness. I mean, that comes right in with the material thing. You know, we're all, we're worshipping the wrong heroes. You know, we've, we've been, we've been hoodwinked into holding up the wrong people as for emulation. And it's terrible. And, you know, like I said, you could list a lot of, a lot more things. There's more, wow, there's just so many things. Christian values, which are, systematically under attack or at least up for debate in a way that I'm not convinced is good for us in our society. And here's here's just one little thing that I just want to mention because, you know, there's such hypocrisy with like, oh, we have to acknowledge all these all these other religious holidays. You know, we've got to make sure that we've got like the Muslim holidays and the Jewish holidays and the, you know, and I'm like, okay, fair enough. Like acknowledge the other cultures holidays. I'm fine with that. I'm a reasonable person, but then you can't say that in one breath and then say that we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas or Easter. You know, people want to, people want to erode Christianity. Like it's like, there's just, there's such a double standard. There is absolutely a double standard in terms of, what you're allowed to say and do in terms of Christian uh, criticizing Christianity and eroding Christianity, but then you know the other uh, traditions are all completely exempt from it, and it's just it's not right. And one thing that bothers me is that it's so insidious that if you're typing a text message on a uh, a Samsung phone, you go into the emoji bank, they've got. Uh, a religious symbol for like every major religion um, except for Christianity. The only kind of cross you can get is an Eastern Orthodox cross. So you can get the three-bar cross, but you can't just have a standard Christian cross as an emoji. 
biggest religion in the world can't use its symbol. And you, if you look at closely at what's happening in the world, a lot of crosses are being pulled down because they don't want to offend the Muslims. It's a real thing that's happening. And, oh boy, I just, I, I worry about what's happening. You know, I just see like, yeah, you know, Christianity is under attack and the devil is definitely doing his job. And if you really look closely at what's happening, if you do it for yourself as an experiment, make a list of every venerable, venerated Christian value and then just ask yourself, is this currently attacked somewhere in Western culture? And I think you'll be very concerned with what you find. Anyway, look, that's two hours, so I'd better uh, sign off here. I might have to release these as um, two episodes. We'll see how we go. But uh, until the next time I can be bothered doing this, um, God bless. And, you know, if you have... I can see the numbers, like people are watching this, you know, even even just on the, the primary platform, um, you know, there's like people are at least checking it out. I have no idea what the numbers are on the other platforms. Um, so if you are listening to this and you find it interesting and you have any comments, criticisms, like anything, you know, hit me up at Bill Darklighter um, on Twitter or on Instagram. So at Bill Darklighter, uh, B-I-L-L-D-A-R-K-L-I-G-H-T-E-R. All right, cool. Have a good one. God bless.